Good morning. We want to welcome all of our campuses as we come to meet together. And as we kick off uh, this new church year, I just want to remind you why we do what we do. Here at the Bible Chapel, we exist to develop followers of Jesus Christ. We love that word develop because, one, it means to bring into reality. So that's the non-believer, the person who has yet to trust in Christ. And it means to make stronger. That's the believer. And we want to, as a believer, to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe that if you're growing in your relationship with Christ, you're doing five things. We call these our five essentials, word, worship, connect, serve, share. You are in the word on a daily basis. There's no substitute for that. You're worshiping the Lord with your life, not just singing songs on a Sunday, but demonstrating your love for him in every aspect of your life. You're connected with another believer because the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. You are using your gift to serve, and you're sharing the message of Jesus. You're telling others about Jesus. And we uh, have all our ministries uh, based around that. So we have Engage Ministries here at the church that are strictly for sharing the message of Christ. We have Equip Ministries to help you grow stronger. We have Employ Ministries to get you out doing what God has called you to do. On Monday night, that's an Engage Ministry with Ryan Shazier coming. That is not for entertainment that is for evangelism. And our uh, challenge to every man to, is to come, but don't come alone. Bring a friend. Pray as to whom God would have you invite. Maybe you have already invited that person or people. Maybe you'll invite them tomorrow at school or at work. But it's to bring someone because the message is going to be clearly shared, the gospel clearly shared about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. So we encourage you to do that uh, tomorrow evening if you're a man and kicking this thing off and uh, just pray as to whom God would have you invite to come. Don't come alone. Come with someone who doesn't know Jesus and just pray that that'll be the time that God uses to bring that person to himself. All right, as we kick off uh, this sermon series, I need you to do something with me at all of our campuses. Everyone has to participate. I'm going to ask the campus pastors tomorrow how everyone did. I need you, everybody, all our campuses, to count to 10 with me, all right? Here we go. One, two, I gotta say that was excellent. That was excellent. In the time it took us to count to 10, 1,000 selfies were posted to Instagram. 360,000 an hour, over 9 million a day. And that was just the ones that were posted to Instagram. That doesn't count the 15 pictures that those people took to find the right one to post to Instagram. Now, just in case you have been uh, unconscious for the last five years, a selfie is this. A selfie is a self-portrait photograph typically taken with a smartphone with your reverse camera, right, which may be held in your hand like this or supported by a selfie stick. Selfie stick entered the dictionary, Oxford Dictionary, in 2015. And in case you don't know what Instagram is, just ask your kids or your grandkids, and they'll tell you. 
Now, here's the question. How many of you have ever taken a selfie? Raise your hand. Nice and high, proudly. Proudly raise your hand. Well, if you've never posted a selfie, someone close to you has. 34% of all millennials regularly post to Instagram, and 63% of teenagers post regularly. That's why, by the way, Facebook bought Instagram. Anyone know how much money? A billion dollars. 300000 in cash and the rest in Facebook stock. Eight million businesses post on Instagram. In fact, 72% of Instagram users have purchased something they saw on Instagram. By the way, just in case you're wondering, if you're a business or a person who likes to post, there's a little debate on this, but the best time to post is either Wednesday at 5 p.m. or Tuesday at 2 p.m., just in case you're wondering. The person, the people we really should ask are those who lead the way in Instagram followers. That would be number one, Selena Gomez. She has 234 million Instagram followers, a singer and actor. She started her career growing up uh, with this uh, age group, Barney and Friends, and then on some Disney programs. The second guy is a Portuguese soccer player named Cristiano Ronaldo. He has 123 million Instagram followers, Portuguese soccer player. And the last one is Ariana Grande, 118 singer and musician, 118 million Instagram followers. Now, just in case you think Selena Gomez does this as a cool hobby, think again. It is big business. When Selena Gomez posts a picture, she normally has a certain shirt on advertising a Coke in her hand, and she makes, you ready for this? $550,000 per post. It's a lot of money. If any of you would like me to endorse any of your stuff, (laughs) we can talk about it. I'm cheaper than Selena Gomez. We're going to talk about selfies and Instagram and some different digital stuff in this series, but what I want to make sure we understand today is that selfies are not a new phenomenon. In fact, the first selfie, if you do a little research with selfies, the first selfie ever posted was in 1839 by this man, Robert Cornelius. And I don't know exactly how he did it, but uh, his family owned a a store in Philadelphia, and he put the camera at one end of the store, and he took out the lens some way and went to the other and put the lens back on. And that is said to be the first selfie ever taken, Robert Cornelius, 1839. But even before that, artists were painting selfies. Leonardo da Vinci, Rembrandt. Monet, Van Gogh, Picasso, and here's one, Salvador Dali. Now just check this out. 
Here's what he named his selfie. Soft self-portrait with grilled bacon. (laughs) Call me a hater, but that guy is weird, just weird. (laughs) And before they painted selfies, what did they do? They sculpted selfies. And you can see these sculptures of people throughout the years. In fact, let's just face it. We've been all about selfies since Genesis chapter 3. When Satan, the inventor of the selfie, convinced Eve to leave God out of the picture. While the present day selfie may be a, 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 a social media phenomenon, the real selfie right here. It is a self-addiction. It is a sinful self-absorption that infects every human heart. Jeremiah says it, doesn't he? The heart is sick, desperately wicked. Who can figure it out? And he wasn't talking about the person sitting next to you's heart. He was talking about yours and mine. So today we're going to start this new sermon series called Unselfie We, Not Me. And the purpose of this series is very straightforward, to address the issue of self-focus from Scripture. What does Scripture say about self-focus? The purpose of this sermon is to get over ourselves in order to live beyond ourselves. Now, when we think of the word we, not me, I want us to think of the word this way. First, think of we in a vertical way. And we want to start with our relationship with God. That's where it always starts. So me and God. And the questions we're going to be asking during this series is, what do I need to do? What do I have to do to grow my relationship with God deeper? After 10 weeks, What will we have done? Not talked about doing, not thought about doing, not been convicted of, but what will we have done to start that process, to be in that process of growing a relationship with the living God deeper than it is right now? The other part of we is people around us, vertical. And we want richer relationships, don't you? richer relationships. We want to make sure that there are those in our life that we are deeply involved with. And we want to start in our home. We're going to be talking a lot about home because you know what? If Christianity doesn't work in our home, it doesn't work. How is it working in our home? And we're going to talk about restoration, and we're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to talk about those things that we need to be doing in all of our relationships to grow deeper with God That's the main relationship. And then, when that's in order, we can grow richer with others. Now, our series has as its basis the great commandment. You remember in Matthew uh, chapter 22 where uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they were all about the law. They were the experts in the law. They not only had the Ten Commandments, but they had about 365 other laws that they had added to the Ten Commandments. And they asked Jesus, trying to trick him, Rabbi, teacher... What is the greatest commandment? Thinking that if he said one commandment, they could come back and say, well, what about this one? 
And so you remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with everything you are. Vertical, deeper. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Your spouse. That's where it starts. Your family. Those God has put in your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a tough one, isn't it? Paul repeats that in Philippians when he says, when he says um, that we should look out for the interests of others more than ourselves. Vertically and horizontally. That's where we're headed over the next few weeks. And we're going to see from Scripture how God has designed us, next time, to be hardwired to have a relationship with him and others. He's just hardwired us that way. And then we're going to see in the series how Satan has come and perverted God's purpose. And we're going to talk about relationships and how we can grow them in a richer way in our relationship with God, the first how we can make sure we are growing deeper. We're going to talk about parenting because, again, if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. We're going to talk about marriage as well. And we're going to focus on we vertically, not me. Let's pray together, and then uh, we want to get into God's Word in Micah chapter 6. Father, we thank you that you are God who loved us so much that you sacrificed your Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. And so, Father, we pray that as we start this series, you would teach us how we need to live in response to your great love for us. We pray that you would speak to us today as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. The Old Testament book of Micah. The prophet Micah. We're going to look specifically at verses 6 through 8. We'll set the context first. But one commentator has said chapter 6, verse 8, is the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. In Micah 8, uh, 6, 8 is this. He has told you, O man, the word Adam, uh, all people, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to what? Do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that's a familiar passage for many of you. I want to set the context of this passage before we drill down on chapter 6, verse 8. So Micah lived around 700 B.C. He was a prophet during the reign of three kings, a king named Jotham, a king named Ahaz, and a king named Hezekiah. He was a man who uh, was prophesied during these three kings, and he also prophesied during the name of a more popular or more famous prophet named Isaiah. 
In fact, if you look at Micah and Isaiah, you will see there a list of similar passages, what we call parallel passages. Now, during the time of Micah, Israel was split. There was the, there was the northern kingdom here, and there was the southern kingdom here, and the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And it was split about right here. Now, Micah was from a town about 25 miles from Jerusalem. So, although he is prophesying against both Israel and Judah, he is focusing on his home area of Judah. Now, let's think about real quick how uh, Israel got split in the first place because it's part of the context. You remember Solomon's, the last king all kinds of things good are going on during Solomon's uh, reign, and uh, he builds a beautiful temple, Solomon's temple. People came from all over the world to see Solomon's temple and all over the world to see what was going on in Israel. They said at that time, uh, stones in Israel were as common, gold and silver were as common as stones. Imagine that. So people came all around to check it out. But the problem with Solomon, remember, he never got over himself. It was all about him. And his love for many women, his idol of lust, caused him not to follow God. And the kingdom split after that. Right after Solomon died, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to the throne. But he made some terrible decisions. And the people rebelled against him. And a guy named Jeroboam said, I'll take advantage of that. And so Jeroboam led a revolt and the kingdom split. So you have Jeroboam up here in Israel. You have Rehoboam leading Judah. Now, Jeroboam had a problem, a practical problem. He wanted people to live right up here in the north. But the, what was his problem? The temple was here in Jerusalem in the south. And if you're an Israelite, you go to the temple to worship. That's where you go to worship. So Jeroboam said, I can't have people going back there because they're going to see that's a cool place to worship. That's a place that God has. That's where the temple is. And they're not going to come back to the north. I'm going to lose my people. So he said, I don't know what I'll do. I'll build two temples. I'll build two places of worship. And so he built one right here in Bethel so that the people in the southern part of Israel could go. And then he built one up here in Dan so that the people in the northern part could go. He did not want them to go to Jerusalem. Now, that was his first mistake. The temple was in Jerusalem, and he builds two other places of worship. But then he also allowed the uh, religion of the Canaanites to come in to Israel. And so they started to worship Baal, and then the female version of Baal, Asherah. If you go today in the northern part of Israel, you can still see these altars built to Baal. So because of their disobedience, because they're following other gods, in 722 B.C., God allowed for the Assyrians to come in and take captive the northern kingdom. And you know what Judah said? It's what you deserve. Good enough for you. You pagans, you heretics, we've got the temple. We do things right here. You got what you deserved. And Micah said, not so fast. 
Micah said, we may have the right doctrine and we may have the temple, but that's all an empty shell unless you're growing in your relationship with God. So Micah warns them of their sins. He said, we're living into this great economic time and you wealthy people are hoarding the money. And then you're oppressing the poor. You're not sharing the wealth. And when they need to borrow, you're buying up their lands or exacting exuberant taxes on them. That's good practice. Idolatry, yeah, they had Baal worship up there, but uh, you're worshiping money. And there are other things that you're bowing down to. And, and, and you didn't like their civil government, but just look around because Micah said there's a breakdown in, in failure of, of government and religious leadership. And, and Micah said, you're glad they got taken captive because they were pagan? Well, just look at some of your business practices. They're corrupt. And do you really believe, Micah said, do you really believe that you can just take a lamb or a goat or a calf and sacrifice it and it's all you have to do and then God's happy with you? You see, Micah said, you got the doctrine. You just get empty shells for hearts. Here at the Bible Chapel, we're pretty confident in our doctrine. The doctrinal statement has been the same for 50 years. And we believe it's solid based on Scripture. We take some unpopular stands on marriage and sanctity of life. And we don't back down on that. And all those are good things. But as important as doctrine is, it is an empty shell unless God has your heart. The smartest person regarding Scripture I ever knew knew more about the Bible he forgot more about the Bible than I'll ever know. Was a jerk. And he tried to split our church. And he went down the road and tried to split another church. And then he moved again and tried to split that church until they disciplined him. You can have a head full of doctrine, knowledge, and have an empty heart. And that's God's charge against Judah, chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. The mountains were a symbol of, uh, of people. Uh, the mountains had always been there. And God says, I'm going to tell you some things I've done in your history, and these mountains are going to testify to it. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Then God says in verse 3, Oh people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. What have I done that you don't want to follow me? What have I done 
that you really don't take me that seriously. Well, what have I done that worship for you is just kind of a little hobby if it works? Well, what have I done that I've wearied myself of you or that you're wearied of me? And then God doesn't go into theology. He goes into experience. And here's what he says. Man, don't you remember how much I love you? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. Man, I, I bought you out of slavery. Don't you remember that? I sent Moses before you. I gave Moses the law so that you would know how to love me and, and, and we could have this relationship together that, that works, a life that works. I gave you Aaron, who was, who was the religious leader of the time, so that you knew how to worship me. I gave you Miriam, who probably functioned as kind of the leader of the women of that time. Oh, people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, uh, Beor, answered me. God here is saying, don't you remember when some of those pagan nations were after you, how I sovereignly intervened, I protected you, nourished you. And what happened from Shittim to, to Gilgal? Shittim was the last encampment of Israel before they crossed over the Jordan, and Gilgal was the first encampment of Israel after they crossed over the Jordan. So God is saying there, don't you remember how I opened the Jordan up for you and put you into the promised land? Don't you remember? What have I done that you have turned on me? I've, I did all those things so you can know my righteous acts. So the people respond, okay, God, we get it. You're not happy with us. You're bringing an indictment against us. So what, so what do we do? Verse 6, with what shall I bring before the Lord? I bow myself before God on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That was, that was the best sacrifice you could bring, a year old calf. Will the Lord be pleased with the thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of, of oil? Of course, a hyperbole. You can never bring that much. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? Here's a little jab at Israel, because in their day they had turned so far from God they were actually sacrificing their children, like the pagan nations. And again, this is the hyperbole. If I did that, would that would that be enough for you? And then God says, No, I don't want any of that stuff. I want your heart. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do what? Justice. To love what? Kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Let's think about those three things. God says, I want you to do justice. Ju justice has become such an important Important it is, such an important and rich concept in Scripture, that sometimes those types of words and those types of concepts and those types of truth, we hold so high up here that, that we can't reach them. They're just nice things to talk about. And so when we think about justice, we think about, you know, we're going to write a check to the, to the Compassion uh, uh, International, right? Every concert we have, man, there's a whole halftime that we do that. And that's cool. Or we're going we're gonna to support the uh, international justice mission because those people, they're going around, they're doing justice. Or here at the Bible Chapel, Faith House in Thailand, we're going we're gonna to support the Faith House in Thailand. Now, all those are tremendous things. 
And that's part of justice. But think of the word justice if you're holding it high and mighty and just bring it down right to here because the biblical justice is hands-on. It's not just writing a check. It is personal. It is practical. Biblical justice simply means doing the right thing. Personally, doing the right thing. Justice begins by getting alone with God and his word so you know what the right thing is. And justice is demonstrated at home. It means to refrain from hurting others with your words and actions. You may look just out there, but if you're hurting your family, that's unjust. It means to set aside, it means to sacrifice personal aims and ambitions for the good of others. Again, we get over ourselves in order to live beyond ourselves. And again, if this isn't working at home, then it's not working. Now, there's no perfect family and there's no perfect home, but these are the issues that we have to deal with. These are the issues we have to grow in. We have to nurture these relationships. We have to deal with sin and the issues in our family so that we raise our kids in a godly manner, not the way the world tells us and expects of us. We have a different standard. Justice is also practiced in the community of believers. And I want to do something, and I'm going to take justice, and I'm going to bring it way, 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 way down for some practical application. Justice means doing the right thing by others, right? And so here's a practical challenge for us as a church. I'm not talking about anyone here today. This starts next week. We have got to be on time for worship. Time is our most valuable commodity. And when we don't plan our time to get to worship in our seat, ready to go, that's unjust. We're robbing a note of praise to God and we're distracting other people who are taking it seriously. Now, I, I get it. Babies spit up right when you get in the car. I know that. And dogs get loose. And dinosaurs just appear right in your driveway, and you can't get out. And some of you with kids, you come to starting point for the first time, and then you got to walk a mile and a half over the children's area, right? So I get it. There are certain things all those things exist in our life. I've gone to football games with you guys. What time does the game start? One. What time are we going to leave? 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> because we're going to get there, and we've got to park, and then we've got to eat, and here's how long it takes to get to our seat, and we've got to get there. We are not going to miss the kickoff, right? Why? Because it's important. We're on time for things that are important. This has been an issue at the Bible Chapel for years when Laura and I first came here, we were candidating, actually, and they said, we said, how many people go to the Bible Chapel? They said, about 300 people. 
There were two services, so we went to the first service. When that thing started, there were 10 people. Laura and I looked at each other and said, they lied to us. There are not 300 people here. But you know what? People moseyed in after a while, and there were the 150 in that service. When you're late, you're robbing God of hearing your praise. You're distracting others. So here's our challenge. Starting next week, our Saturday night service starts at 5.50, not 6. The 9 o'clock service, 8.50. And this service, 10.35. And we're putting out what's called, we're calling a 10-2, the number 10, the number 2, challenge. Be in the worship center. Lobby doesn't count. In the worship center, 10 minutes before the service starts. And introduce yourself to two people. Two people. Reach out. Let them know you're glad they are here. Maybe their first time. 10-2 challenge. Because you want them to know you're glad they're here, and we're going to worship together. And so, at 10.45, it, it won't look empty in here. Right? Because it's important that we worship God, isn't it? Well, okay. That was heartfelt. <laughs> we talked about this at our staff retreat, and the staff's going to lead the way. If you see a staff person, including myself, and I've been one of the worst at this because I get caught out in the lobby and then I'm late coming in. If you see a staff person in the lobby after, 10, after 5.50, 8.50 or 10.30, you just throw a flag right in front of them. We're going to get in here. We're going to set, we're going to set the example. I'm asking elders and leaders to do that as well. All right. Justice. Do justice. Secondly, love kindness. Kindness is this great word in the Old Testament. It's the word, rich, rich Hebrew word, kesed. It's used 245 times in Scripture. It's prevalent throughout the Psalms. Sometimes it's used to describe God. Sometimes it's used to describe how God works with us. And sometimes it's used to describe how we should interact with each other. Sometimes in Scripture, it's translated steadfast love, sometimes faithfulness, sometimes loyalty, sometimes mercy, sometimes kindness. But it means that we interact with each other in a way that loves each other. We care for each other. We're going to look out for each other. We have each other's back. Do we agree all the time? No. And when we don't, we're going to confront each other and challenge each other because that's what you do when you love people. But we're going to do this thing together because God is our heavenly Father and He is the God of covenantal love. And we're going to walk with Him through this thing. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9 says, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Now, again, let's get practical. Sometimes challenges that happen in a church our size, because we have campuses and different things. Uh, not everyone comes every Sunday. Not everyone reads the bulletin. Not everyone looks at the program. That's the new word for it, I was told, the program. Not everyone looks on the website. Not everyone sees those things. So we, when we do an announcement on a Sunday, we have to do it three times in a row for everyone to get it because not everyone comes on a, every week. Challenge in communication. And we know in marriage, communication is one of the things that blows up a marriage and it blows up a church. So we're going to just try one thing. I'm going to do a podcast, and the title of the podcast is, So Here's What I Want to Know. And you can ask any question. 
and we'll have to filter them. I can't ask, answer every question, but we'll filter them. We'll put them together. We'll look at the echoes, and I'll bring on the people we need to, but we want to communicate with you. It'll be a short, a short podcast, but we want to communicate with you. What is it you want to know? What is a decision that's made that you just don't understand? You see, when, we, when the decision is made and you don't understand it, that's just a, that's just a recipe for, you know, oh, they did it again, bitterness, anger, frustration. We don't want that. We want to do this thing together. So part of kindness is good communication. So submit your questions, and we'll do our best. Leadership, vision, theology, decisions we made, whatever they are, and we'll do our best to answer. The last one, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Uh, that word, Hebrew word humbly it, there that's translated humbly is only used one time in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean so much as a lowly state, but a better translation would be walk carefully with your God. Walk thoughtfully with your God. Think about that. In order to walk thoughtfully and carefully with God, first we have to be in his word. We have to be in prayer. And we have to hear the things he wants us to hear so we can stay on that path that he has for us. We've got to keep the distractions away. And we have to do the things he's called us to do. We've got to get over ourselves so we can hear really what he wants us to hear and live the way he wants us to live. And so throughout the series, we're going to be talking about getting rid of those distractions. What are the things that are distracting you? What are the things that are keeping you from a full-out, full-orb following of Jesus Christ? Only you know what they are. And we want to deal with those things through this series. We're going to have the worship uh, leaders come out at, at all the campuses. And as you're coming, let me just tell you this story. 1788, 11 ships landed in Australia. Came from the United Kingdom. Two of them uh, were uh, Navy ships. Three of them were filled with food. And six of the ships were full of convicts that were being taken to Australia to settle the land. In the food ships, there were cages of rabbits. And uh, they used them for food. One of the things they used for food, rabbits, of course, populated quickly. And they could use the rabbits for food. That was 1788. Fast forward a few years later, Australia has been settled by these prisoners. Europeans and wealthy Europeans are going to Australia and there was one guy who said, I love rabbits, but I love to hunt rabbits. I love to shoot rabbits. And so this wealthy man said, I want to hunt rabbits over here. And so he brought over 24 European rabbits. Cute little rabbits. What harm could they do? In 50 years... There were plagues of rabbits in Australia. The rabbits populated so quickly, they couldn't be shot. And they would just um, eat the grass, and, and it changed the ecology of Australia. 
They would, they, there are places in Australia now that are just eroded away by the rabbits. In the late 1800s, they tried some things to get rid of the rabbits, never could do it. In the 1930s, they introduced a, a, a chemical to get rid of the rabbits. And they did for a while, but they just came back. In the 1950s, another chemical. In the 1970s, another chemical. In 1995, another chemical. 2017, last year they did the same thing again because of the plague of rabbits in Australia. They say that rabbits, uh, they, they lose $200 million a year in agricultural production because of the rabbits. Now how can a cute little rabbit do all that damage? Here's a question we're going to be asking ourselves. Start it today. What are the rabbits that are eroding your soul? What are those things that are causing so much distraction in your life? Maybe it's the iPhone. You're addicted to it. No, you're really addicted to lust, but the iPhone's a great tool for that, isn't it? You're really addicted to money, but the iPhone's a great way to do business. You gamble on it. Play games on it. Check the stock market on it. See, whatever you're addicted to, it's not technology. Technology's always been around. It's God's great gift to us. It's an issue of the heart. The real selfie is me. And until we get over ourselves, and until we deal with those rabbits, those things that erode our soul, we'll be no deeper in our relationship with Christ next year than this year, next month than this month. And we'll have no richer relationships than you have right now. And the Christian life was not, is not to be lived satisfied. But the Christian life is to be lived in a way that sees the urgency of a world going to hell and we have the remedy. But it's hard to talk about it if we're not living it. So we have to deal with the things that erode our soul.